So well, that's weird because like you must have really not felt well. Yeah, for for you to seek the care of three different people within twenty four hours. Yep. yep. I mean that like I don't know, man. That's um, I I'd have to be pretty sick. So from a Friday night to like a Sunday night, a right. couple ER visits, same wow. ER, hmm. a couple different doctors. But were you throwing up or fever or what? Just what fever. How did you know you fe- was so bad? Just you just fever. Hmm. Fever was the main thing, you know. And so um, I ended up at the time. My uncle was a physician in Fairfield, about it, about forty five minutes south of Iowa City. So on Sunday night, I go see him, and um, and they admit me to the hospital in Fairfield, and they run some more tests, still nothing, and. Um, by that time there, there did start to be that, I think it was that night. I think it was Sunday night, Monday morning. There did start to be some, um, some redness around my leg. Right. So they were thinking at first, well, maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was some crazy side effect from the spinal tap. I I don't know, you know? And, and so, but what they started doing on Sunday night was marking, like marking the redness. So the redness started Mm -hmm. down at my ankle and then it would, it just slowly crept up my calf and up into my knee and they kept marking it. Right. And so on, um, and you've got this relative, this small town family physician, right. Um, not, not my uncle, but a, a coworker or a, a cohort of his. And, um, I, I remember him. So they, they put me in the hospital. They admitted me overnight. I stayed overnight and I remember him coming in and I, I think it was on Monday morning. It was just one night. But I remember the door opening, like it's like five o'clock in the morning. He busts in and um, his name was Dr. Bauman. And he comes in, he's like, all right, here's the deal. I don't know if this is what it is, but um, by the book, it looks like this could be a flesh eating bacteria. He said, I don't know. And I, if it is that, I can't treat you. Right. So just blatantly honest. And, um, and so he says, I'm going to send you back up to Iowa City, but go to the University of Iowa hospitals when you get there. And so I get there and still- So just, he, he didn't send you in an ambulance. He sent you just, just by your yeah, car. Yeah. yeah. Yep. He was, he was over his skis. He was <laughs> he over was. his skis and he was probably a day too late over his skis. Maybe. And that's why he, yeah. he barged in. He probably yeah. had a conversation yeah. with somebody- and they're like, you got to get this out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll never know. Yeah. But we can be, for one thing, we can be thankful looking back now that, that at least he was honest with, yeah. with us and with himself that, Hey, I ain't got it. Yep. You know? Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with my good friend Matt McConville about his work with Break the Cycle and the types of things he's doing within Break the Cycle to try to expand the reach uh, and prevent uh, human trafficking. And that is sort of his third F. We have an F3 conversation that I thought was really great. and we talked about Matt's history within um, his experiences that kind of brought him to where he's at in life. So that that was a, a lot of fun to learn about. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I want to talk about the My Day Multifocal for a second. We had the opportunity to do a preclinical trial with this lens this last summer. And there were a couple of things that I thought were really helpful. The first one is that it is different than a lot of the multifocals that we've used before in our practices where patients, especially early emerging presbyopes, really managed the, it didn't cause a lot of additional uh, distance blur for them. And the other thing that was really helpful was 
because we've never been involved in a clinical trial before, was to understand uh, the sort of questions that we might ask our patients. And we ask a pa our patients a lot of questions about their patient about their satisfaction with a contact lens, but what we weren't doing was actually having them score that themselves. So one of the parts of this that was really interesting to me was asking patients on a scale of one to 10, how they would score their vision, how they would score their comfort in their current lenses, and then how they would do the same on their uh, new lenses. And it showed me a lot of times where patients would say they were happy, might rate their vision as a six or a seven. And, um, and then it also reframed their thinking about their current satisfaction in their lenses and allowed me to open up the door to offering other solutions. So if you haven't tried something like that in your clinical practice, I would encourage you to. And I would also encourage you to try the MyDay Multifocal for your patients. What do you think about your macular degeneration supplements for patients in category one through category four? Do you feel like you have a really good way to distinguish between what type of supplement you're using and why you're using it? I'd encourage you to check out the evidence behind MacuHealth. We've used it in our practice for a number of years now, and we have a real great solution for patients in category three and four, as well as supplements for patients who don't need the full AREDS formulation. We've been really impressed in our practice by the way it performs and also by the patient acceptance of those supplements. And MacuHealth has also been a great partner in our practice to help us with resources and tools to help us describe and define why their supplements are more bioavailable than some of the things that patients can find at a supermarket or a drugstore. And the most important thing for me about having a supplement in our practice for patients to have access to is I can know whether or not they're getting exactly what I'm prescribing. So that seems to be really helpful for my patients because they're not scouring through the aisles trying to pick up something and having that 10 minute evaluation of what type of supplement they need. So if you haven't started using MacuHealth in your practice yet, you can find all their information in the show notes and they definitely have something that is worth your patient's time and worth your patient's vision. Tell me about it. So tell me, we've already talked about in depth, we've talked about yeah. running, about the cycling 200 mile deal. Uh, across Nebraska and Iowa. It's not RAGBRAI and it's not BRAN. Neither one of those. Yeah, but uh, tell me what it is. Talk about it. Yeah. So what it is, it's called Break the Cycle 200. Uh, it is a one day, 200 mile bike ride that originated from Des Moines to Okaboji. So it started off as a, as a challenge. Uh, I think there were a, a buddy of mine and another friend of his were getting into their 30s. They were starting families and they realized they were getting a little little too plump. So they needed a goal like most of us yeah. do, right? And so they set upon themselves to see if they could ride 200 miles. And originally it was going to be 200 it was going to be 2 days 100 mile each day. And uh then at the last minute Andy, a coworker and a buddy of mine said, "No, we're going to do 200 miles." So they ended up doing the uh 200 miles. And, uh, it sucked. It was, it was bad, but they completed it yep. and, and it was hard. And when they got, what was the, what was the thing about 200 miles that made them like, why was that the unachievable goal or the goal they wanted to adhere to? They were, so they were both pretty avid cyclists and a hundred miles for a, a seasoned cyclist isn't that big of a deal. So mm -hmm. they wanted to reach a little further. The other thing I think went into it is that Andy uh, Andy and his family have a place in Okaboji, and it's uh, about 200 miles from Des Moines, which is where Andy lives. So I think that was a nice termination point, and I think that's kind of how they put it together. But 
they wanted something that was just out of out of reach you know what i mean yeah. so something that would challenge them and so they did it they accomplished i think year zero there were I think four riders. Just because. They just wanted to achieve that goal. There was nothing else behind it. There was nothing else behind it to start it. Yep. So it started with fitness. Fitness. Okay. Fitness. And and them noticing their lack of fitness, right? So like us, they had started having kids. They had become more sedentary and they they needed something to reach for. Yeah. So once they realized it could be done, they said, let's do it again. But we really need to, we need to make the miles matter. Right, we need to find a cause and something we can rally behind. Um, and so, about at the same time, so that the co-founders are Rocky Vest and Andy McCoy. How I got involved is I work with Andy. Andy and I have known each other for over fifteen years. Um, our history goes back to at the University of Iowa. Hmm. And um, so, Andy and Rocky, were, coincidentally, at the same time, we're just kind of learning about. Uh, human trafficking and and how much of an issue it was, and um, for some reason the two of them just kind of latched onto that that they wanted to raise awareness to fight human trafficking. So they um, they kind of rallied. You know, four turned into eight or ten in that first year, and they wanted to focus this ride, this one day two hundred mile ride, as a means to raise awareness and to raise money for for the fight in against human trafficking. And so they, they started with this small group and, um, what was originally called the Okaboji 200. Hmm. And, um, and for a number of years, they, they called it the Okaboji 200. And then they realized that they needed to kind of expand the footprint in order to make their dollars go a little bit further. Um, they partnered with a group called venture expeditions and venture expeditions was a group that, that partnered with other smaller groups doing endurance events like this just to try to help broaden the footprint. So is it any, in any way like a organization like Pink Gorilla or, uh, or it, they all have some other, um, it's not just for profit. It's the venture group that you're talking about. They help other smaller groups that are using it to drive nonprofit entities, or do they do like any kind of rides they want to help out with? The, the venture group was to kind of help them build it out, okay, right? And so like get the get get all the cert, uh, certifications for the state so that you can ride on public roads yeah. and all that kind of yep. stuff because they yep. can navigate that. Yep, and it was a, it you know they at the time venture had a platform that they could use, um, and now and since then they've they've even they've um kind of branched out even further and they've partnered with a bigger group called Hope for Justice. And the, and the difference between Venture and Hope for Justice is that Hope for Justice pretty much aligned with their vision of awareness and 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 um raising money for human trafficking. So Hope for Justice is a big organization that then they were able to partner with um and and really build, you know, build the the Break the Cycle brand, if mm-hmm. you will. So so Break the Cycle is a brand within Hope for Justice. Hope for Justice is kind of this broader organization that has about 500 employees. They have about 30 hubs across the United States, all with the goal to raise money and to raise awareness to fight human trafficking. So they've taken what, what's really cool about this is that they've taken you know two guys that were sitting on a porch one night and said, "Do you think you could ride 200 miles? Do you think you could do it right. in two days?" Right. And and then it morphed into, "No, let's do it in one day." Yep to two guys to eight to to 12 to 
whatever it is. And and now it's, you know, out of Des Moines, the ride that originated out of Des Moines that's still going is anywhere from 50 to 60 riders in, in that single day at the end of June that go from Des Moines to Okoboji. What's cool about it is they've taken and, and replicated that model across the country. So they've now, they've still got the original ride in Des Moines. They've got rides in Minneapolis, in Nashville, in Dallas. And, and just this year, they'll have a few rides um, overseas. Hmm. And so, um, and, and then kind of where I come in is last year, they decided that they wanted to do a ride out of Omaha. And so when they, when they go into a new city, it's important for them to kind of have an anchor, have a person that will organize, right? A um, nantan, if you will. Uh, yeah. A redwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, um, so I, it, it was interesting because, uh, Andy called me, Andy McCoy called me and said, Hey, um, we want to, we want to organize this, um, right out of Omaha and would you be willing to help us get it off the ground? And I'm, I was like, yeah. And it was an easy decision for me because about five years ago, after hearing Andy talk about this and never really seeing it in person, um, a few of us from the office loaded up on that Friday at the end of June got in a truck and followed them on their journey. So how they do this is that they, they start at five o'clock in the morning, they start out of Des Moines, it's dark, and they stop about every 25 miles or so. To hydrate, get nutrition. The stops are quick, like 10 minutes, and then they're on their way. And we thought it would be cool just to follow them, just to see. And it was eye-opening. I mean, you see the, the, the truth, like the suffering that they do, hmm. right? That they go through for one day with you know this bigger picture in mind um, of raising awareness and raising money um, to to for this fight that that unfortunately a lot of people don't know really exists or they've heard about it they've seen it in movies um, but they don't know that I mean this is happening in Omaha it's happening in Lincoln well that's the that's know? the interesting part to me and you and I discussed this a little bit <clears throat> and and it's actually one of the the things that. Um, are anticipating or actually has occurred recently is, you know, obviously we think about trafficking that occurs from South America across Mm -hmm. the United States border. A lot of times we don't think about the trafficking that as trafficking, but a lot of trafficking occurs that way. But then we, then I, I think I said to you is like, well, you know, I don't know anybody that has gone missing. I don't know anybody that has kids that have gone missing. So it's like, well, like you said, but we don't really think about. So who, like, when you when you dig into this, what is there like a type of kids or like a vulnerable uh, person that that is likely to be you know trafficked? And how does that how in your experience of like uh, of understanding this, how does that start for for many kids? Yeah, and, and teenagers? so I'm not I'm not much different from you, Chris. I don't I don't have direct experience with it. So what? Uh, and in, in the sense of break the cycle, I'm relatively new as, as far as getting into the details of a lot of this, but, um, in ta- in talking with Rocky, uh, and, and some of the other meetings we've had, what's happening a lot now is, is online, right? Mm-hmm. So there's grooming that's going on through social media apps. Um, and, and that's happening online. And, and then there's, I, I think stereotypically people think, kids are getting picked up at truck stops right. and then they're vanishing. Right. right. And that's, it's not that that's not happening. It is. Um, but I think the, the bigger, the bigger, um, issue right now is just trying to understand where else is happening, like, you know, within the apps. And then the other thing that they're doing is partnering with 
local law enforcement or local private investigators that that really know the signs, know the questions to ask, know what to look for. Because we, I don't know, Rocky doesn't know, but what we're trying to do is get you know provide a platform that can, can that can raise the awareness, that can raise money to help fight the cause that 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 help fund the professionals that know to know what to do. Right. You know, so, so the, it's not like, um, when you think about your kids, you know, there probably is some of that is that you're in a, you're in a big store, your kids are running around, maybe somebody gets nabbed, but that's probably a higher risk scenario than if, from what I'm hearing you say for the perpetrator, then, uh, grooming somebody who wants to run right. away. Right. And so now they can run away and not have communication and once they get to a specific point, they're running away. They're comfortable running away. They've they've already in their mind kind of wrap, mm-hmm. wrap their sel- themselves around that, and then they um, and then they sort of become indoctrinated in other ways. Yeah. And then they're got, and yeah. then they they don't feel like they can leave. They, they're abused, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So the signs that you're talking about, uh, people looking for. And, and what they know is, okay, well, when somebody is in this type of situation, mm-hmm. this is how they behave. Right. So we need to distribute that information into different networks and different law enforcement officers. And that's what you're funding. Yeah. Yep. And the other part is training. So, um, so like as, as an example, one of the things they're doing in Iowa is partnering with hotels, mm-hmm. right? to train hotel staff on what to look for, how, how to see some of the signs. When because, somebody comes in for an hourly room, yeah, <laughs> yeah. then you got to yeah, wonder. Yeah, yeah. Those are the easy ones to spot, <laughs> right? Right. right. Um, but, you know, so that's part of it. And, hmm. and even taking it a little bit further is to, so training hotel staff. So like and, a guy walks in with nine kids into one room. <laughs> Yeah. Then your office is yeah. suspicious. As long as his last name's not Wolf, yeah. right? Or yeah. his wife is, if his wife is with him, he's probably okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, they all look like him, then you're probably fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, so partnering, one of, and this is a, this is something I just heard earlier this week. But partnering with uh, hotels to train hotel staff on on the signs to look for, mm. and then um, they're they've implemented some legislature in the state of Iowa so that. Uh, for example, when when high schools are traveling to, let's say, traveling to Des Moines for state basketball tournaments, state wrestling tournaments, those different events, and they're you know you've got high school age kids or school age kids traveling in groups, staying at hotels, mm. they've um, they've ma- they've provided some incentives or requirements for for these schools to use certain hotels mm. that have had this training, so oh. that now you're you know you're kind of aligning um, aligning everything together. And, and so that's, that's, uh, part of what they're doing in Iowa, as far as working with the legislator to, again, kind of outside the, the realm of what you might think about as far as the, you know, generally the fight against human trafficking It's kind of finding other means to, to fight the fight. Yeah. Know? So, all right. Um, when I think about this from a standpoint of F3, you've got, uh, you certainly have, um, fitness mm-hmm. aspect of it. And then there obviously is this fellowship that these guys that started it and you now have kind of come into bond. Yep. Uh, it's not F3 because the mission is different. And, uh, and yet, you know, it, within F3, this seems to be a very nice third F opportunity. I would say so. Yes. Yeah. So, so then, you know, I'll kind of expand upon that in a second, but uh, to talk about, you know, one of the, the things that I think about within Freed to Lead is how do you view opportunities mm-hmm. that are relevant to the goal of F3 
uh, versus maybe you haven't thought about this versus just any old opportunity. So they mm-hmm. kind of talk about that struggle. Um, but first, where uh, where if there if, if people in Omaha or across the country are interested in supporting this or riding, they like to ride. Uh, where do they go? Uh, where can they find out more information? Yeah, so uh, the easiest thing to do is 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 to search "Break the Cycle 200." So if you you know search that on the web, you'll you'll hit the hit the website, and that will take you to the website that has all of the rides. And the first thing you're going to see, which is what I tell everyone, is there's a great video at, on the homepage um, that really goes through. It's like four minutes long that goes through and interviews some of you know two, the two co-founders, Rocky and Andy. And then um, some of the other folks that were instrumental in those first years. And they have some great video of the rides and some great interviews so that you can understand, you know, how did this thing get to be what it is? Mm-hmm. So that's the, what I, you know, what I tell people. Go go there. Um, and then within there, there's, there's ways, you know, when people ask how they can get involved, I say, well, you could ride, right? And I understand that's not within everybody's wheelhouse <laughs> to go hop on a bike for 200 miles for well, a day. Well, even as much of a, of a, uh, a fitness guy as you are. It's yeah. not in your wheelhouse. It's not. There's some barriers to entry. You yeah. Know, we've talked about it this. Hurts you know. yeah. <laughs> it hurts your crotch. Yeah. That's my barrier. Yeah. You got to have a good seat. Yeah. You got to have a good bike, first of all, which yeah. I don't have. But um, but you can ride. You can tell someone that rides that, hey, this is something cool that's happening at the end of June, on June 24th. Um, or you can, you know, throw some money at it, you know, donate to it, sponsor it so that so that your money can help support the ride and help support the cause. Um, or the easiest thing to do is just tell someone else, mm-hmm. you know, tell someone else about it. Um, so we're trying to partner with local bike shops because that's where a lot of our networking happens. Um, so that's kind of how, that's how we're trying to get the word out. And then working with other, other news and media organizations here within Omaha just to try to spread the word and, and build, build the rider group from Omaha. Yeah. 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 So, all right. So then I want to get to the, the other F3 stuff. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, the fact that you're so passionate about it is really cool. And, and it sort of was uncovered through our conversations, yeah. just sort of as an afterthought, uh, is how you and I had, had initially started talking about it. And, um, and so how did you decide, like, and you're filtering through the third F stuff that you want to do, you know, the mm-hmm. giving back, the community building, mm-hmm. There's so many different options, some within F3 and many outside of F3. How do you, um, you know, in your busy life with your family and your kids and your wife, how do you decide this is something that in general, what's your thought process of how you're going to whittle that down and take something that seems important and make it important to you? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I think it, this one, I mean, break the cycle, for example, came back, um, Again, two two things. You know, seeing that that first year that I followed them and seeing what they go through, um, th- there's 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 one stop at the end of their ride that's pretty special. You know, they got ten miles left to go uh, out of a two hundred mile day, and and they have some um, some survivors that come and um, see them at that last stop, and it's very moving for the riders. I mean, it's, it was moving for me as a non rider. But just seeing how much um, how much impact those riders had on that small group, mm. you know, so that that made me want to get involved. Um, you know, being the father of of two daughters, you know, because this is you know, for the, you know, probably more than not, it happens to 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 girls, right? So being the father of two daughters, um, you know, that's obviously 
something that crossed my mind as far as, you know, being able to support this. Um, so really at the end of the day, um, that's, those are kind of the two things that, that drew me to, to break the cycle and to, to help support that event. And, and, and just trying to, you know, find a way to, to be an asset in the community. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, that's, that's the other thing. It's, Were you that's, looking for something or it found you? Break the cycle? Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, when you tell no. the story, it seems like it, you sort of stumbled on it. But were you actually also thinking like, how else can I do third F stuff? No, I I think um, I think this found me at the right time. Mm. You know, similar to F three. Yep. Uh, when when this opportunity came to to try to to help lead the Omaha contingent of this was you know shortly after my F three journey started. So I'm ha- you know at the same time I'm getting um, you know into F three. And trying to understand, hey, I need to be more involved in the community, right? Be a leader in the community, be an asset. And this, they kind of just came together at the same time. And this, you know, whether it was a light bulb going off or, or somebody just asking the question I needed to hear at the time, mm. hey, will you, will you help? Will you do this? Yeah. Hell yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, of late, you know, we've been spending a lot of time together, you know, on runs and, mm. um, having a lot of good conversation and it's just really especially the the climate that we've been in the last two years yeah. right really makes you stop and think um you know where do you want to be like where do you want to align yourself how can you make a difference uh you know in your home and and in your community and so that's those are kind of the that's the thought process that i try to go through uh when opportunities like this come up whether it's this or whether it's other third F opportunities. That's what I try to focus on. Yeah, that's cool. So then tell me a little bit about, um, I think, I think listeners might want to hear, you know, you, you've got some pretty, um, I would say you've been through some things, um, in your life that are kind of gut wrenching that many of us (laughs) wouldn't have to go through. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I know I didn't tell you that we were going to talk about this, but I think it's an interesting story. Because it's sort of one of these freak things that happen. In fact, the first time I had heard, ever heard about necrotizing fasciitis yeah. was- You said the, it right. So yeah. You well, I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you can trust me in some things. Um, and so, uh, so uh, when, I, when I've heard about it the first time, I think I was, I was watching like one of these like Discovery Channel uh, yeah. things that a guy stubbed his toe on an old toothpick. Mm-hmm. And- um, and he sort of picked it up. And this was, I was probably in high school or something like okay, that when I, yeah. when I watched this show. And it was like, holy cow. Like, and, and in my t- mind, every time I step on something, I'm like, oh no, this is a toothpick. <laughs> you know, so anyway, uh, it's kind of weird to encounter it. But that's sort of the same thing. You were, tell me about, tell me about the story of your necrotizing yeah. fasciitis and, yeah. and that, and then kind of how that, if it impacted you in a greater way. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, necrotizing fasciitis. So if, the non-scientific term would be a flesh-eating bacteria, and that's usually what I tell people when they ask. Um, and and I get the question more often in the summer because I I have to wear a compression. So I, I should say I get to wear a compression sock. Oh, you get you know? to, when you get to go when run. I, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was uh, I was in college, I was a sophomore in college. I was it was uh, two weeks before my twenty-first birthday. Um. I hap- I I was in the National Guard at the time, and I happened to be at, uh, I at didn't know a, that. on a drill weekend. Okay, and so um, I came home from drill one night, and that that doesn't have anything to do with it. 
but I, I just remember that in my mind, you know, I came home from drill one night, I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning, didn't feel right. Had really, you know, almost like flu-like symptoms, just a high fever. And, um, and over the course of that weekend, it didn't get any better and didn't get any better. And so throughout the course of, you know, two or three hospital visits, you know, within that time, um, you know, emergency room visit, uh, family physician, um, I get to the point where uh, I'm, I'm sitting. So at the time I was in, in Iowa City at the University of Iowa. I had gone from a local hospital in Iowa City, a couple ER visits. They didn't know anything. There wasn't, there wasn't anything present that showed. And you don't recall being injured or anything like no, that? No, I don't. That, that, that's the strange thing. You know, uh, oftentimes it's like what you described, Chris, that there's some event that happens or cut or something. I don't recall anything like that. So um, I get seen by a couple doctors. They test me for um, spinal meningitis because that was, you know, relatively common right. being in college. college. Yep. Spinal tap, um, which I, I don't like? remember. You don't you know, remember? Just kind of out of it, you yeah. know. And um, spinal tap back to my apartment. And still up to this point, there was n- nothing present on the exterior that showed any anything like flesh-eating bacteria. Hmm. Um, so I, they didn't. They weren't able to localize anything other than you just didn't feel good, right? Yeah. Not not within like the first probably twenty four hours. Hmm. Um. So well, that's weird because like you must have really not felt well. Yeah. For for you to seek the care of three different people within twenty four hours. Yep. yep. I mean that like, I don't know, man. That's um. I'd have to be pretty sick. So from a Friday night to like a Sunday night, a right. couple ER visits, same wow. ER, hmm. a couple different doctors. But were you throwing up or fever or what? Just what fever. How did you know you fe- was so bad? Just you, just fever. Hmm. Fever was the main thing, you know. And so um, I ended up at the time. My uncle was a physician in Fairfield, about about forty five minutes south of Iowa City. So on Sunday night, I go see him. And, um, and they admit me to the hospital in Fairfield and they run some more tests, still nothing. And, um, by that time there, there did start to be that, I think it was that night. I think it was Sunday night, Monday morning. There did start to be some, um, some redness around my leg. Right. So they were thinking at first, well, maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was some crazy side effect from the spinal tap. I I don't know, you know, and, and so but what they started doing on Sunday night was marking, like marking the redness. So the redness started mm-hmm. down at my ankle, and then it would ju- it just slowly crept up my calf and up into my knee, and they kept marking it right. And so, on um, and you've got this relative, this small town family physician, right? Um, not not my uncle, but a, a coworker or a, a cohort of his, and um, I, I remember him. So they they put me in the hospital. They admitted me overnight. I stayed overnight. And I remember him coming in, and I, I think it was on Monday morning. It was just one night. But I remember the door opening. Like It's like 5 o'clock in the morning. He busts in, and um, his name was Dr. Bauman. And he comes in. He's like, all right, here's the deal. I don't know if this is what it is, but um, by the book, it looks like this could be a flesh-eating bacteria. He said, I don't know. And I, if it is that, I can't treat you. Right. So just blatantly honest. And, um, and so he says, I'm going to send you back up to Iowa City, but 
go to the University of Iowa hospitals when you get there. And so I get there and still So just, he he didn't send you in an ambulance. He sent you just just by in your yeah, car. Yeah. yeah. Yep. He and was he was over his skis. He was <laughs> he over was. his skis and he was probably a day too late over his skis. Maybe. And that's why he, yeah. he barged in. He probably yeah. had a conversation with yeah. somebody. And or they're like, himself. you got to get this out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll never know. <laughs> yeah. But we can be, for one thing, we can be thankful looking back now that, that at least he was honest with, yeah. with us and with himself that, Hey, I ain't got it. Yep. You know? Um, so, and that, you know, sometimes it, you know, honestly in, in healthcare, you're managing uncertainty all the time Yeah, and even really great physicians, you know, they're, they're trying to say, look, I, you know, this is when you see something come in you know, there's the common stuff. And then there's the stuff you have to be aware of that's very uncommon, but you just have to keep it in the back of your mind. And so you're like, well, it's probably not that, but you know, we know that, that uh, we're going to manage it this way. And if it doesn't follow this normal course, then we might still think about this. We'll maybe manage it a little bit more. And oh man. Okay. And that's yeah. probably what he did. Oh, it's yeah. like, yeah. all right, well, we're going to give you IV antibiotics. We're going to, you know, check your spinal tap. We're going to check this. And it's like, everything's coming back fine. <laughs> okay. It's still pointing more to this. <laughs> Out of yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but, but so, I think that's pretty normal, right. actually. It's more and, normal than you think of it. Yeah. Think it well, is. And, and it's funny you say that because that's even when we got to the university hospitals, we saw some of that. So yeah. I, when I get to the University of, Hos- when, university of Iowa Hospital, I get seen, I think it was probably by th- at least three other mm-hmm. doctors, right? All of them come in. No. And, and by, so by this point, they were diagnosing it as cellulitis, yep. which is pretty relatively easy to treat, yep. right? Yep. Um, and so if it was three, the third doctor comes in, he's like, I'm pretty sure it's cellulitis, but there's one guy I want to take a final look at this. So this guy comes in, um, his name was Dr. Keeley and Dr. Keeley comes in and at the university of Iowa hospitals, they treat necrotizing fasciitis in the burn unit just because of, because mm-hmm. of all the skin grafting and debriding and things that they have to do. So he, Dr. Keeley comes in. And, um, my, my, uh, wife now girlfriend at the time and my, my mom could probably tell the story better cause they were in the room. Um, he comes in and, and Chris, I'm not kidding. He's probably in the room for 20 seconds, looks at it, you know, snaps his fingers or something like this. He's like, no, that's necrotizing fasciitis. He needs to be up on my floor. Mm. And so in an hour or less, I moved from that room up to, I think it was eighth floor, uh, his floor. And so they watched me. I, th- I think that was a Monday. They watched me Monday night. They hit me hard with antibiotics. At this point, that red spot I was telling you about is up above my knee and you know, there's Sharpie marks all the way up my leg. And it's getting more red and it's moving up my leg. And by midday Tuesday, they had got it to recede a little bit mm. to get below my knee. But the thing they said is that, yes, it's, it's receding, but as it's receding, it's also moving inwards. Right. So they made the decision at the time that they'd waited long enough that they needed to go in and do surgery to, to debride it, basically take all the skin, take all the flesh off. So they take all that off on a Tuesday. I think I, I sit for um, maybe five days or six days, um, and then they come back six days later and do the skin graft on it. Um, and then, you know, the rest is kind of history. So I, you know, I always, I, it, it's, there's a couple of things. So I never realized how bad it was until, you After. know, six months later. Yeah. And that's when you start reading the stories like you said you heard. Yeah. 
Um, and then the other part, I have to laugh about some of it, but the other part is I, I was, I got to spend my 21st birthday in the hospital. So I remember, you know, when I, when I was at a point where I could be seen, I, I remember like six of my college buddies coming in, um, and, and it was wintertime, it was December. So they come in with their winter coats and each of them had a, like a 24 ounce beer uh, stuffed <laughs> their underneath coat. their coats awesome. that they brought in. <laughs> and so, uh, but no, so that's, that's kind of the, that's the longer, one of the longer versions of the story, but, um, you know, two weeks, two weeks in the hospital, it happened at about the best time it could. Cause it happened in December, like at the end of the semester. So I went home for the, for Christmas break. Um, did some pretty hard uh, PT and rehab, and was able to return back to school that January, that that next winter some or the end of January semester. You know when you know there's a lot of things that that uh, you think about. We've talked about in terms of uh, from the last couple of years about you know um, mortality and uh-huh. how do you uh, how do you manage you know being in a situation where can you accept you know, your, your own mortality. Mm-hmm. Did you have any, cause, cause generally speaking, when you have a necrotizing fasciitis, yeah. you are close. Yes. You're close to the edge. Yeah. You had no idea no you idea. were though. No idea. So did that in hindsight, reflecting on that six months later, did it give you any insight or it, you just never realized it? So you couldn't wrap your mind around the fact that you were very close to death's door. Um, I don't think, I don't think I ever, wrap my mind around it um like that i mean mm-hmm. i knew i knew that i had a um condition that that can be and that for very for quite a few people is life threatening you know is um everything that i had read and everything that i had heard is that if you get it getting it on an extremity yep. is your best case yep. you know but i didn't i didn't know what necrotizing fasciitis was before december of 2000 right. You know, it just underscores, you know, the thing that, that I think it underscores is like, there's nothing you did I mean, you're yeah. going about your business. Yeah. You're going to bed. It's not like you cut yourself and didn't clean it or, I mean, it's just like, it just kind of highlights this, this, this idea that, mm-hmm. you know, we are mere mortals yeah. and we are here to, we are here at the leisure yeah. of the Lord. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Absolutely. just we're, we're serving at the pleasure of, mm-hmm. of, of Jesus. And yep. so it's like. It's like, you know, just like that. I mean, yeah. Matt, there you go. This is your this is your lot. Yeah. And for whatever reason, he decided not to take it to yeah. that point. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, it's just thing it's just kind of like one of those things that I think over the last couple of years as a society, we've toiled yeah. with like what like what is like let's take it to let's take all of these measures to avoid, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I'm not again, I'm not trying to be make a political statement, but just like it's very fresh is that, you know, at there are certain reasonable measures that a person would take to try to avoid death, yeah. right? Yep. But then there are other reasons, other me- measures that are probably not as reasonable. That that yeah. are so, the the risk to benefit ratio. Uh, y- you can't just completely eliminate risk in all of our life. Right. No. And so, an event like this, to me, it would seem like um, would maybe make you feel like, well, it's kind of chance, you know, just chance happens. Are you at greater risk now to have this happen again? So, um, they would say yes. Um, and it, it's interesting you ask because, so that happened in in 2000, Mm -hmm. I moved to Omaha in 2005 
And um, right after I moved to Omaha, I had a little bit of a scare that was that was similar. I had some of the similar, hmm. some similar characteristics in. Um, so, so what we just talked about happened in my left leg. Hmm. I had some similar similar characteristics in my right leg. Hmm. Like within two weeks of moving to Omaha, it was the strangest thing, and um, and it was scary because I still had some of the signs, you know, some some redness and some swelling, hmm. and um, but I went, you know, I went to the hospital and I knew the questions to ask. Like, and you know, the doctors look at you weird when you like when you ask. Um, can you, uh, I need a soft tissue x-ray. Can you do a soft tissue x-ray? And I'm like, yeah, why, why would we want to do that? Well, this is why, because this is, this is my history. And, yeah. um, but so I am, I think I am at a little bit greater risk, um, you know, just from that and, um, you know, but getting back to what you said, one of the things, one of the things that was interesting about when, when it happened the first time, you know, when it happened, when, when I went up to Dr. Keeley's room or his floor one of the first things they said is like, look, we don't know how you got this and we're not going to know how you got it. Oh, really? Right. We don't know. Mm. We're not going to know, but here's how we're going to treat it. So they kind of drew a line in the sand right there to tr try to hope, I think to, to avoid, um, don't rest on your, you know, on your laurels, right? Don't, yeah. don't, uh, don't dwell on the past and, and let's mm. not figure out, let's not ask why this happened. Let's figure out how the hell we're going to treat it yeah. and let's move forward. You mm. know, I think that's part of life. You know, you get, you know, you get dealt bad hands and you got to move forward. Right. That's, that's part of it. So there's, there's a lot of different ways that, you know, you can think about it, that you can handle things like this and setbacks. But, um, I think it's just one of those things that the Lord thought that I could handle. I could learn some lessons from it, and and I have. And um, you know, I've uh, I'm great. Like I said, I'm I'm truly grateful to have a leg. You know, because a lot of people in the same situation are walking on a prosthetic right now. You know. Yeah. And and they're probably happy to be walking on a prosthetic. You know. So I'm happy I can go out and run a half marathon with you and do all kinds of other crazy. Sh the morning it's pretty crazy so, yeah. yeah man mcconville thanks for doing this man thank you Do you want to finish it like we finish everything we should all right uh so i think i usually let you start off so go ahead i'll let all you right. start man mcconville 41 pantyhose pantyhose christopher wolf 40 cataracts cataracts thanks for doing this man thank you awesome